0: Hello, Brian. Can you hear me?
1: Hello, Adam. So we uh, had a bit of a failed mic check. God, I want the green room. The Twitter green room would be so useful.
0: uh, Was um, Cliff unable to participate?
1: (laughs) Cliff was unable to participate. So uh, we'll see. Uh, Cliff is now exploring alternative methods. I I, I wish I knew how Twitter spaces worked. I, I just... Like why does it not work on the desktop? And why it doesn't? It doesn't work on kind of arbitrary devices with a mic. It's um,
0: uh, what was he trying it on? Unclear. His his keyboard firmware (laughs) that he wrote himself. Uh, But like
2: (laughs) 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 you're not wrong. (laughs)
0: That's not impossible. Like why is this not working? I wrote this firmware myself. <laughs> right,
1: exactly. This uh, this firmware it should be it, it looks exactly like an Android device. So I don't I'm understand. Sure. Yeah, unclear, unclear. Laura, I don't know if you had a sense of what oh. he was actually. Uh,
2: he, he described it as a burner phone. For background, <laughs> Cliff doesn't Cliff doesn't install a lot of apps on his phones, and so he does not have the Twitter app installed on his phone. So he couldn't really participate in this. So he's been trying to set a thing up, and so maybe it will work out. But. That's kind of the situation we're working. I hope right. so.
1: I feel that like if it doesn't work out, we should just sit here and uh, and just just talk about Cliff for. Oh, oh my goodness gracious! Here he is. Oh wow. Okay, that's so exciting. Cliff, are you there? Laura, are you there? Laura, I am. Uh, Laura's here, and I think Cliff might be there. Cliff, are you there?
2: Cliff, you are currently muted, but if you hit the button, it should unmute you now. Now you're unmuted, but we hear nothing.
1: We hear nothing. It's so tantalizing. Cliff is like, I actually, I found a bug in my firmware, and I pushed a fix, so I'm still calling in from my keyboard with a microphone on it, <laughs> <laughs> but no, it mostly works. Uh, okay, you've already entered. So Cliff, you show up right now as muted. You
0: did by, show, yeah. The uh, backup record. I mean, old school recording, which I still think is the better recording. Is gone, it is the better, just, just so you know. better
3: recording.
1: It is the better recording. No, I, I, I think actually both are going to be, it, I, the old school recording is definitely necessary because there's not, a, they haven't generated a way for you to download an MP3 out of it that I have seen.
0: Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I, I think all they have done is allowed you to effectively play the recording that they always make.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't know. It makes sense. Like, it makes sense. Yeah, to, yeah, They sure. don't want to put you on someone else's platform. They want to keep you on their platform. That's fine.
1: You know, I understand that. But then you, yeah. the, the problem is that after three days, it gets deleted.
0: Oh, that's a huge problem.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. Sorry. <laughs> I, yeah, I was like, Adam's being awfully cheerful about what I think is a kind of a limited facility. Yeah, that's Jake. Uh, okay. Cliff is now reconnecting. Um, and Cliff is gone. So um yeah. i could hold
0: my phone up like phone to phone
1: oh, oh, oh we have definitely <laughs> sorry if you weren't in some of the brainstorming conversations about this
2: i was talking about obs setups <laughs> like we were starting to get a little in detail um, nice
1: yeah we we had a lot of ideas um so I'm hoping that, that that Cliff can bounce back in. Uh, we will. I, I still like prefer the idea of Cliff speaking through Steve as his representative on Earth, and Steve, but St- <laughs> but, but 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 Steve only speaking in his own voice. So Steve's like, mm, let me. I will convey that question to Cliff. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Uh huh. Uh ah. huh. Mm. Okay. Cliff has is
0: said, this, "This is like two middle schoolers who refuse to speak." um Okay, Cliff. Brian wants you to know
2: all those all those years paying attention in CCD are about to pay off big time. <laughs> finally, I'm... that's
1: right. I was so now. I, I was now thinking. Steve, is,
4: now, Steve, is Cliff in the room with you right now as we're talking? <laughs> <laughs> right.
2: Right. So, for background, for those of you who have joined us don't know this yet, one of our last folks who is like kind of the architect of a lot of this is uh, having some technical difficulties. So we're trying to get him going and sort of talking okay, about no, that. Okay. Right okay. Technical since... difficulties
1: Wait, is the glass Cliff is half free, empty. Cliff,
0: Cliff feel, feel free to shout and interrupt at any point.
1: Can Cliff speak? All eyes t- turn to the gray egg that yeah. has muted itself. <laughs> 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 gray egg. Yeah. Unmute yourself. there. Oh, connecting. Um, The... Uh, I, so yeah, so you all right, you were going like middle school, your mind went to like middle schooler playing um, like social in-between. I was viewing more like Old Testament. Steve goes to the mount. <laughs> oh,
3: and...
1: oh, oh, hey. Oh. We got you, Cliff.
3: Yeah, Twitter on Android seems to not like you to have a headset plugged in.
0: Mm, why would it?
1: <laughs> oh.
0: S- seems, seems like pilot error.
1: <laughs> oh god well I, and i was just gonna say like you were saying the when you said that uh the, the cliff is having some technical difficulties is the glass half empty version the glass half full version that i prefer is that cliff is rightfully a twitter conscientious objector and it uh, so cliff thank you very much for being willing to uh to join us we obviously are um very excited to have you here I am also going to be entertained how many uh, followers person with mouth, uh, also known as OK Spaces Lol, ends up with out of this because uh, a a terrific account. Oh, oh. Hopefully he's back. Cliff, are you back?
3: If you plug in headphones after joining, your
1: mic will never work again. Ah, oh, Twitter Spaces. I, I am sorry. I don't even know what to say. Hey,
3: it's all good. I mean, I, it, so what are we talking about? So we're talking
1: about. All right, <laughs> that's right. Well, right now we're talking about technical difficulties with Twitter Spaces. Um, so we are gonna t- we are talking about hubris and humility. Uh, the uh, a system that we're super excited about. Um, we open sourced. Uh, coming up on like two weeks ago, and. We've talked about – I think uh, some of the folks have not read it. Um, we've talked about both some of the history of it. Um, Cliff has a – honestly – Adam, did you watch Cliff's presentation on this, by the way? Have, I don't know, have you seen it?
0: Yeah, 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 I
1: did. It is it is outstanding. Really, the, it is really, really good. The,
0: yeah, really great. Clip.
1: I, I, and I, I don't. I mean, I mean, obviously, I'm biased, but I thought it was was really, really good. I Just like they because I, it is very hard to get pacing right where you've got something that has got dense technical content, but isn't just like overwhelming people with a fire hose. It was it, a failure book that I may have fallen into.
0: Cliff, if I may, it was annoyingly good. <laughs> it was like. It was like why 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 have I never <laughs> achieved anything close to this? It was, it was delightful.
1: It was very good. Uh, Thank you. Um, and it, it was which is, it was also a lot of work. So I'm, it, it was good to see so many people react so positively to it. Clifton also posted a transcript of it along with a pointer to a fact, which also folks should read. The fervently answered, the fervently anticipated questions, which were great. But Cliff, I wonder if you might – because one thing we have not talked about is the prehistory of hubris, namely your experience prior to oxide that kind of informed it. So I wonder if – I'm not sure where you think the prehistory of hubris starts, um, but I would – I mean I would love to know because I've got my own kind of guesses, but I'm not even sure I know the answer to this, about the systems that you had used that – informed some dissatisfaction or or where you saw some room for improvement?
3: Gosh. Uh, Well, in the beginning, uh, when they were only adding machines, no, I think most of the formative influences on this came from writing the firmware for Project Loon at Google. Um, We were in a high reliability context that wasn't a human safety context. It wasn't a Medical devices context, but it was a case where once you let go of the device and it flies up into the stratosphere, no one can reach the reset button, and you're kind of hosed if anything goes wrong. So,
1: Cliff, could you give a little context on Loon? I actually, even though oh, because yes. I didn't know about Loon really before working with you, and it's a kind of an ama- it's an amazing project, honestly. Um, so, it, I think pe- people would love some uh, sort of a refresher on that.
3: Yeah, I mean, the, the short version is, is uh, it's a project I started with a couple of people in 2011, trying to extend the reach of internet access to more underserved areas using high altitude balloons. And uh, I originally joined the project because I thought it wouldn't work and I wanted to prove that and I failed. Um, so the project <laughs> escaped into water.
1: I, I have a, a follow up question that I'm afraid to ask. So just go on, right. on, Loon. Okay.
3: But I wound up uh, specializing as the project got bigger on uh, electronics and firmware, and then eventually uh, running the firmware team. So that was uh, that's the context for the need for high reliability Stratosphere firmware. It's kind of like going to space, except that honestly, space is a lot better understood.
1: So, you know, what were some of the similarities? I mean, I guess the clear similarities are going to space. But what were some of the differences about about? the kind of high altitude flight versus space?
3: Well <clears throat> so I've never done space professionally, but I'm friends with a bunch of people who have. And the main thing that we were able to take advantage of because we weren't doing space is that our launches were cheap. So if if you just have to fill the thing with helium and release it from some unpopulated area far from an airport. Uh, you can iterate faster than if you have to pay tens of millions of dollars per launch. So in that sense, we were able to, uh, we, we had it easy in many ways. We could iterate faster, we could launch new versions of the firmware more often than you could have in a space situation where you pretty much get one launch. Uh, I mean, until this Starlink stuff started happening, obviously. But uh, So that was nice. The downside is that we were building systems that were going to be Constantly buffeted by wind, we couldn't control which direction they were going. They don't stay in a constant orbit. They're moved around by chaotic atmospheric forces. And so we had to build large weather simulators to be able to steer our things around. And uh, that eventually worked. Um, But, you know, I was that, that wasn't my department. I was more concerned with the power and thermal and communications happening in the actual device.
1: Okay, and what were some of the problems that you had in the system software on that, some of the challenges that you had running the for the firmware for that thing?
3: I mean, there's the problems that we solved, and then there's the problems that we never really solved that led to hubris. Um, the problems that we solved were, we had a relatively small team, many of whom were not trained in the area, because I was sort of deliberately recruiting people with non-aerospace backgrounds, uh, because... I started at the top of the software stack doing UI, and I've been gradually working down. And I find that there's a lot of software engineering process and principles that I picked up on the way down that people that were trained mostly from the bottom up may not have picked up. So in many ways, it was easier to pick up people with UI experience who already know things like unit testing and design patterns and teach them firmware than the other way around on our accelerated schedule. So. We were working with a bunch of people who didn't have a lot of firmware experience, and we were working in C and subsequently C++. So this meant that we needed to build frameworks where a person relatively new to the concept of writing drivers could knock out drivers quickly uh, without, w- with a minimum of shooting themselves in the foot. And so we built a framework called Major Tom on Loon that was in C++ and was not memory protected. Uh, that ran on similar processors to what we're using at Oxide. And that worked fairly well, and Loon was still using it up until they shut down earlier this year. Uh, but we had a bunch of frustrations with it, because we had memory corruption, bugs in flight, that turned out to be straight pointer writes from some of the C code. We had uh, stack overflows and clashes, we had uh, buffer overflows, the sort of things you normally get when you're writing a large C application except it's really frustrating when you can't get to the thing to either talk to it on a console or look at the memory through JTAG or pull a crash dump because the thing's on the other end of an incredibly narrow satellite link. So we had to to sort of work with the constraints of our tooling. And the whole time I was wanting a different system. And what that different system looked like evolved over time, but hubris is sort of the latest run at the ideal of trying to build something that enables fast iteration on a more robust platform uh, for contexts where you can't get to the system to reboot it.
0: You know, Cliff that, that was one of the questions I had for you because when you joined Oxide, we were down a pretty different path. Yeah. And I was curious the degree to which you came in sort of knowing the system that you ideally wanted to build. And to be clear, I, I don't feel like you, uh, I, I think you gave that other path a pretty earnest shot. But um, did, did you have that strong sense walking in the door about what you wanted to build and and what we needed to build, and that they were pretty lined up?
1: Adam, I assume he he came to Oxide for the same he came to Loon that he was certain it was going to fail, and he just wanted to watch it <laughs> watch how it uh,
5: and then it. prove well, it. Well, <laughs> exactly. and 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 I was uh, on the Frenemy project to Loon at, at Google, one one of many. That's right. And uh, Major Tom was actually successful, whereas everything that we built in in Global Bit completely failed. You know, so when we talk about the difficulties of of space and things like the traditional approach, which is more or less what Globalbit was trying to do, really didn't even get to the point of of a a single launch where Major Tom definitely made it much further um, and so while Major Tom had flaws, it definitely demonstrated there were alternate approaches that you could you could go, and you know hubris definitely feels like the next version of that in indefinitely improving some of the known failure modes and things that you do encounter still doesn't address things like if you're in space rad event, you know uh single single upset events and stuff like that happens it's hard there's other things you need to do to to deal with that but this is a step in the direction of there's a lot of things that you can just do to make your day-to-day debugging experience and overall like reliability due to code quality be much better
3: and a, and a belt and suspenders approach can help a lot there and that's what we did with hubris but to answer adam's question uh parts of hubris closely resemble other prototype systems that i designed in the years since i left loon um, some of them are on github but I didn't really have a clear idea, and honestly, you know, when I arrived, we were trying to use Talk, and Talk actually meets a lot of my criteria. It lets you write um, memory isolated tasks that can fail separately. Uh, Talk even goes so far as to let you do in-system upgrades of individual tasks, which I, I consider to be kind of a, an anti-feature for our application, <laughs> but really useful in other applications. Yeah. And uh, you know, we gave that a run and. I mean, honestly, you you build the system with the team that you have. So, Hubris's design, and I, I wrote it up in an RFD that we haven't published externally yet. But uh, when I this was the the proposal that oh shit, maybe we should write an operating system. Um, the system design was based a lot on all y'all, actually. You know, like uh, trying to keep things to technologies that people have previous experience with and build a system that the team could could work on. And the fact that we had people with previous QNIX experience and other, you know, Linux kernel experience and things like that um, was really enabling in that sense.
1: I can, you are walking the fine line between damnation and praise and I can't tell which one it is. I actually don't know. <laughs> <if> this, <laughs> uh, it, That's interesting that we – and I also feel like, and Laura, maybe you were talking about like – because you'd done some of the early work as Cliff was coming to Oxide in terms of scoping out the different operating systems. And I just remember you having a line in your RFD of being like, well, writing our own operating system is clearly like everyone's dream but is impractical for a bunch of good reasons that you outlined.
6: Yeah, and, and I mean, I, I'm pretty sure that it's going to, to haunt me for, you know, as long as I continue to work at Oxide about the, yeah, we're, we're never going to write our own operating system. But I mean, I, I think more than anything and reflecting on that and how we end up getting to hubris is that I, I think writing out was, was, was supposed to be an available of all available um uh operating systems like things for what we could potentially use for um the service processor and root of trust and i think that that was certainly a good exercise and i think we at the time we were still leaning towards talk and i think talking a lot of things appealing but i think i think ultimately what it was is when we eventually decided to shift away from talk i think we concluded that having already done this work that there really wasn't anything out there so you know i i think we had i i put that that Running your own was a last resort, but I mean, it really was just because there wasn't anything out there, which is where we ended up, you know, jumping the hubris.
1: It, totally. And I, you should not be haunted by that. I thought like that, first of all, I certainly agreed with that when you wrote it. It makes total sense. It is, I actually think to the contrary, the fact, just as like you said, it's like you made a good case for why we, if there's something ex- extant off the shelf, of course we should use it. And, and we went... Some would say, I feel I personally went, like, we went really far. We really tried to get it to work, and it just was increasingly clear. And I was trying to remember, like, the ordering at which it was clear to whom, when, that, like, we really should give our own thing a shot. Cliff, I feel like you had the first realization. I feel like I was a late adopter. I'm not sure. Yeah, I wasn't
3: actually sure how well it was going to go over. Right, because this is the sort of thing that can go over like a lead balloon. And so I, I put together RFD-41, which is the original design proposal, and floated that. And I think, uh, I feel like that was sort of the tipping point. But I think, I think that the process that we went through uh, was absolutely the right process, because had there been something off the shelf it would have saved us time. And over the years, like, because I do embedded and I like good software and I like not, I like having the computer check my mistakes so that I can think about harder problems. I've tried basically everything I can get my hands on. Uh, There are a few I can't get my hands on. Green Green Hills Integrity is pretty high on that list, but I hear good things. Um, But among the things that are available, open source or uh, trial, there's just kind of isn't anything covering this corner of the space talk comes the closest and i think that the evaluation that that laura and patrick and you were well underway on when i showed up um was critical
1: yeah and then i I think that sorry steve go ahead
2: there also is like as somebody who showed up after this was already done like hubris existed by the time i showed up on the scene but there was one comment on the internet that i think like exemplified some of this and like showed this due diligence though is because somebody said like it's, it's impressive how this is like the pragmatic choice for you all. And the only thing I could really say was, well, it's a little hard to sell writing your own OS as the pragmatic choice, but like you all did your homework and it turns out that just actually is the case. Like that, that was in fact the right call. So, well, the,
0: yeah. I mean, there were two things on the other side of the ledger too, that I recall. One was like taking on a massive like compiler project and the other was trying to turn a open source project that didn't necessarily want to be turned the way we wanted to turn it. So yes. it-, it it, it it was the pragmatic choice.
3: And one of the yeah. things that I appreciate about Oxide is that we had from the beginning language for expressing that. So the fundamental problem with trying to lead talk in a direction that isn't consistent with their goals is that we understood that value alignment and alignment in motivations and goals is critical. And that's a thing that we like actively reflect on and talk about. So when it became clear that we were going to be pushing talk in a way that is effectively against their values because talk prizes a number of things including uh, understandability of the system and teachability of the system to undergraduates neither of which are goals for our firmware but they're still laudable goals and pushing talk away from those goals would have done them a disservice
1: yeah, that's exactly right. And I would love to say that I learned that lesson the easy way, but I didn't. We learned that that all comes out of my reflection of the joint divorce with Node.js, which uh, and actually, and all honestly, I got to give credit to currently one of the one of Oxide's investors, but was it also an investor um, in Joint, um, Charles Bueller, who really insisted that I speak at NodeConf after this divorce effectively. And I'm like, Charles, I'm not going to speak at no comp because I have nothing to say about no that's going to be productive. And he's like, oh, like that's now I definitely want you to speak. And I'm like, oh my God, that's so broken.
2: Get your finest tomato repellent outfit <laughs> oh, and uh, get ready to be jeered
1: at. <laughs> totally. And But I have to say, I really thank him for that because it really pushed me because I had not really processed it very well, I think. I think I was still in that mode of just like, of not really thinking about what had happened. And it was actually helpful for me to go back like, wait, what did actually happen here? And actually there was this values divergence, which I think is important because it it just, for exactly the point you're making, it's not that the values that Node aspired to were wrong or the values that Joyant aspired to were wrong. In fact, it made it worse that they were both laudable values because we were both trying to make a relationship work when we actually weren't totally committed to the other's values, certainly not, and in that talk, I talk about how really JavaScript wants this kind of uh, ubiquitousness of programming, wants everyone to be able to program in JavaScript, which is an extremely laudable goal, and Giant really wanted Node to be completely debuggable, also a very laudable goal, and there were points where those just came into conflict with one another, and you kind of had to pick one, and we kind of made different choices. And then those choices became flashpoints. And we definitely, and Steve, I know for you in terms of processing, for me, like coming to Rust, I loved the fact that Rust was so upfront about its values. And Steve, you've got a great talk too that people should see talking about that.
2: Yeah, I appreciate it. It's also on that note, something that Rick said earlier that I wanted to like mention too, with the choice of using Rust for this was like... Uh, the and and also sort of what cliff was saying about it's easier to teach high level people firmware sometimes i used to joke like back in the day uh early on in rust my job as like a ruby person who's now in a low-level language is just to like convince the other low-level people that they are allowed to have nice things like it's just like when, when when yehuda and carl first like wrote cargo like it almost didn't happen like cargo actually was like a thing that the the people at the time were actually very against investing time into and the only reason the cargo exists is because dave herman was in charge at mozilla relatively speaking he was like you know director at the time and he said i think this needs to exist and i'm gonna put budget into it and i'm gonna make it happen and i don't care what you guys say and a lot of the like people at the time said like cool, you guys can use that toy or whatever, but we'll keep writing make files. And then when they saw it, they were like, oh my God, I'm never writing a make file ever again. And cargo is definitely not perfect. And we've wrangled a bunch with cargo to make hubris work. If you've checked any of that stuff, you know there's kind of a giant pile of things there. But like the point is, is that it can be really, really hard sometimes to convince people that they're allowed to have nice things and those can work. And that's like reasonable for you. And so that's also a thing I see in hubris and humility is not just like from the angle of using a language that wants to make these things nicer, but just also like, I don't know, I barely even know how to use GDB. Like it's terrible and the interface is bad and it's confusing and I messed up all the time. But like humility has like a lot of really cool stuff in it. It's totally achievable with GDB if you're willing to like fight the lion or whatever. I don't know if that meant, that's not even a metaphor. You get what I'm saying?
1: Yeah, definitely. Sorry, go ahead.
3: Oh, I was just going to agree that that's not a metaphor because there is an actual Biological lion living in the. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
2: At a, at a meeting earlier today, I mixed like five metaphors into two sentences. So I've just been on a weird kick today.
0: Anyway. And Brian, I mean, you cut the first code in humility. Do you want to talk about that since we've alluded to it a bit?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, and that kind of honestly came out of our need to debug talk. Um, and so. It, it, because the other thing that, that, was, that was making things uh, even more um, complicated, I would say, in terms of – part of the reason we came to talk is because we were looking at OpenTitan, which was based on RISC-V, an FPGA or an ASIC, still unclear, and we never ponied up a half a million bucks to be able to get this question answered. But the, um, the OpenTitan was using talk as its a, as a system software. So that's kind of how we kind of came into it. And then you and Laura were engaged in uh, a, th- some of the things we needed to go do to risk five um, on th- to get Roby and Rippy to work. And what we needed that I'm trying to remember like
0: it, 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 it was to make it relocatable so that we could compile things without
1: knowing a priori where they were going to land in memory. And why did we want that? What was the, what was driving us towards that? I mean, clearly, like for a bunch of good reasons.
3: Why would you not want that? Yeah,
1: right, yeah you, you're right.
3: Like, yeah. So the, the the read-only position independence means that you can compile these binaries and then toss them together into a memory image without having to aggressively relocate or rewrite them, which is great if you're an image builder like Talk. And this sort of thing can mostly work on ARM, and support at the time was a little behind on LLVM. But uh, the read-write position independence stuff is so that you can use a single... ROM image in flash to support multiple tasks with different RAM areas, which would be a huge space saver and be great, right? So uh, we absolutely wanted those and we still don't have those.
1: And, and then we were also at the same time looking at different FPGAs, really thinking that the the root of trust would be a secure FPGA. The problem is that the secure FPGA, uh, it's, I, I, it's not, quite a contradiction in terms but it's close uh there are not a lot of vendors and as it turns out they kind of rely on security through obscurity
3: yeah if you want to buy security oriented chips do not decap them and inspect them and do not disassemble their walls um, because you will be very disappointed and now we're where we are today
1: right because it turns out these things have these kind of cortex they, these arm hard cores and that then led us down the road of like, well, actually, what do we need the reconfigurable computing for? Maybe we should just go through and use hard cores. And then I think, I, it, Cliff, I, it, I, correct me because I'm, I'm, I'm probably misremembering all this. But at some point, you were like, you know, the, uh, the STM32F4 on the F407 Discovery Board is a, real, is a part that I, Cliff, know really, really well. This is a well-understood part. Everything's been reverse-engineered on it we should use this as a platform to go explore a new system. Is kind of how I remember that happening.
3: Yeah, I was approaching it from a slightly different perspective of, it seems like this soft logic uh, RTL component of the project is going to be a significant risk to our ability to ship a product because good RTL people and particularly good RTL people who are willing to interface with high level languages are um, worth their weight in gold and can be difficult to find and hire. And we've got a few now, but at the time we had one and a half and that was going to be a problem. So yeah, I I suggested maybe hard logic would be a less risky path and uh, that's where we are right now. Hey Cliff, this
0: was probably a, a flip comment, but I think at the time you also observed like why do we even need to run multiple tasks on this thing? Just give me seven ARM cores and I'll just run seven different tasks.
3: Yeah, I mean I've got... There's something to be said for that. If you have if you can if you control the silicon you can do silly things like that um, we don't control the silicon however so
1: <laughs> as we learned the hard way uh, see Laura and Rick's vulnerability in the OPC55 <laughs>
6: Yeah, and also I think to the um, FPGA thing, I think we also ran into issues just because we're dedicated to trying to do, doing everything open, and the state of the open source uh, tool chain for FPGAs is just not there yet. And I think we're all eagerly awaiting the day when that actually comes.
1: Absolutely, Laura, very good point. And the the, the vendor that was is the furthest ahead on the secure FPGA seems to be the furthest behind on open source tooling. Um, in that week. we couldn't even get, I mean. Arian was trying to saw Arian in here earlier, maybe you can hop in and and I and offer his perspective. But Aryan was just trying to get it to work on Linux. And they're like, ah, you don't really support. Yeah, it should work, but you're kind of on your own. Just to get their proprietary tools to work on Linux. You're like, oh come on, let alone the, the true open source ecosystem allowing us to actually put our own bitstream down. And we so Cliff, you it, 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 so you started how long did that process take from kind of initial like I'm gonna take a swing at this to having something working because I remember that as being remarkably short but maybe I'm misremembering well,
3: the thing people forget when they talk about writing an operating system is that you have a tremendous amount of flexibility in defining what an operating system is. <laughs> So, oh, if you're writing a deliberately minimal kernel, you can get something up in a couple of weeks, which I think is what we did. And uh, you know, from there, it's just the the death of a thousand paper cuts of all the other things that you need to do, like the debug tooling and the build system. And the
2: I mean, we're coming up on that uh, the whole 2,200 lines of code thing, right? That we were joking about. Nobody got mad about, but we thought they might. Uh, the core yeah. kernel itself is today is like 2,200 lines of code. So getting that written is like not impossible. Uh, obviously, you need more than just the kernel in a system like this. But, uh, you know, it's smaller than you would think.
3: It's yeah. also like it would be closer to 1,500 lines of code if Rust format didn't really like using <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh
1: I just love the fact that we can't talk about hubris without possibly linking to a Rust format issue. Um, but, that, but hey, we wouldn't do this if they would close the issues. So. Um, so we – Cliff, you went into there for a couple of weeks. Someone actually asked me on Hacker News, like, hey, what was the process for this? Like did you have some big document where you described all this in advance? And my memory of this was we were hitting not just one or two but quite a few of these roadblocks where it's like, ah, this doesn't feel like, – this is going to be uh, – Laura, I remember in particular when – you, Adam, and I were talking about you going seriously into LLVM to like get all the ropey, rippy stuff working. We we're just like, wow, this is going to be rough sledding. <laughs> like this is—it's all software, but this is complicated software for sure. The uh, but so we were uh, and my again my recollection of this was Cliff is going to go down a couple of weeks and let's feel if we're on the right path or not. And Laura, I love your recollection of this, but my recollection of that after Cliff's like only a couple of weeks, it felt like this is definitely the right path. It just felt like really, really clear that the the, the budding hubris was the right path.
6: Uh, you know, I'm honestly trying to remember this at the same time, but I'm but that sounds about right. That like, I, I think we continued trying to do stuff with with talk in parallel and trying to figure out what was actually going to make sense. And I mean, I think it did end up down, Pulling down LLVM and also start to do a little bit of looking at it, then also try and figure out exactly what would be a path forward. But um, I mean, I mostly just remember Huber's coming up, and then you know, just being really excited to play with it and actually see what what happened with it.
1: And then somewhere along the line, about this time, we did a journal club. I think is that am I remembering this correctly? Because we did a journal club where Cliff, you picked a um the the i think it was the jonathan shapiro paper right i'm trying to remember the, the actual papers that we had for that
3: yeah we did uh vulnerabilities in synchronous ipc systems by jonathan shapiro which is a good sort of primer on how not to do synchronous wrong and then we did uh the elphinstone paper on like 20 years of l4 learnings and recollections that goes through the l4 family tree and things that they've learned uh, which is another great source of information to mine if you're designing a system based on message passing, and uh, I think that was those are those both of those papers are actually linked from the Huber's reference documentation in the bibliography in the last section. If anybody's curious, but um, they're they're a great sort of jump starter on how uh, it's it's like a concentrated shot of thirty years of learning in the
2: and for some small context, Journal Club is basically like Oxide internal, everyone reads a paper and then we get together to talk about it situation. Um.
1: Yeah, and we had we deliberately have a shrink to fit process on that. I think that we, a bunch of us had different experiences that we pulled together of Journal Clubs that kind of hadn't worked exactly right and or hadn't done, had been like too much or too little or, and what we opted to do at, the, at Oxide, which certainly in this case worked great, I think generally works pretty well, is pretty shrink to fit in that if someone comes up with a paper that they think is interesting, they create effectively, it's like, hey, I'd like to discuss this paper. And as soon as, I think we say, what, three people have read it, then you schedule a conversation. And the idea is that to... Um, everyone reads the paper before having the conversation, so it doesn't end up being a recap. And that journal club, I remember being super excited. I mean, it was great for me because the, uh, you know, obviously, fine, the Unix background, but I've always believed that microkernels were a, uh, had been kind of disregarded prematurely. And uh, especially the L3, L4 stuff is really, really interesting. Um, Litke, I think, is, did you ever meet Litke, Cliff?
3: I did not. I did, however, work for Brad Chen, the man who killed (laughs) Mock.
1: Yes. Uh, Yeah, Brad Chen. Um, So elaborate on the man who killed Mock, actually, because
3: that's... Oh, so microkernels were fashionable in the early 90s, late 80s, and Mock was a microkernel out of Carnegie Mellon that is actually still around in your Mac and iOS devices as part of the kernel. And um, it it was sort of the hotness at the time, but it had some performance problems. And so a couple of papers came out that analyzed the performance problems and made the argument that these performance problems are inherent in microkernel design. That if you were following these principles, you would never have a system that could outperform a certain asymptotic level and that monolithic kernels would always be faster. And this caused two things to happen. One, it caused the mock, let's put mock in everything microkernel bubble to sort of burst roughly overnight in academic terms. Uh, at the same time, though, it really pissed off a guy at IBM who was Jochen Leadkey, who wrote L4 because he had written L3 previously, and L3 is also a microkernel but looks nothing like mock. And so L4 came out along with a angry-sounding paper from Liedke, uh describing... Basically, the thesis is microkernels can be really fast if you don't do them wrong. And uh, hubris is heavily L- L4 inspired. I think it's a
1: great system to look at. I, that is, I did not know that litkey had effectively the same reaction. So that's, it is so funny that L4 had the same kind. So, litkey by the way, for those who are not, unaware, uh, Litke has passed away, died at a really young age. Um, and I had read his L3 paper as an undergraduate, and he has a um, an IPC a paper on the on IPC performance in L3, and some of the tricks that he used in L3 that were were I thought incredibly clever it, it, to make IPC fast, and showing that you could make IPC fast if you just dedicated yourself to the craft of the, the, the actual implementation, that the implementation really mattered. And that paper, have you read that paper, Adam? Uh, the, the, no, the paper. never. Oh, man, that really spoke to me at kind of like a critical time because I think part of the frustration that I was feeling as an undergraduate in computer science at that time is that the implementation was being dismissed as an implementation detail, that the, the it was the architecture that was important and that the implementation was for little people, to, to use a Leona Helmsleyism. And as someone who really valued the implementation, I kind of felt that, like, academic computer science was, you know, taking a dump on me to a certain degree. And here was this paper that was actually enshrining the importance of the implementation, which really spoke to me. But I did not realize that L4 was then I – mean, of course, it all makes sense because in addition to the, this paper that, that, that really was disparaging of, of microkernels – they were also disparaging of memory protection and pointed to the commercial success of windows as evidence that people don't want memory protection in a system. And Q- QED. that reading that paper was the moment I decided not to go to graduate school. That the, like I actually was so like just out of my mind in reading that, that I'm like, I'm, I actually, I'm, I'm, going into industry because i i just was and it, it's probably unfair probably an overcorrection but um so i'm just cliff that is really fascinating to know that litke had that also that direct inspiration on l4 and i think that the litke's work is is outstanding and shapiro also references litke's work a lot if i recall correctly
3: yeah i mean he's He's eminently referenceable. The papers are fairly accessible, even without an academic background. And uh, Hubris's IPC mechanism is not fast, to be clear. It is not currently fast, but it's designed as sort of a shadow of L4's mechanism, such that I'm confident that if we have the time, we can make it fast. Uh, You know, it, it uses a somewhat awkward register ABI that I know we can make fast in context, switch passing on ARM, and... We just haven't actually taken the time to write the fast paths yet. But my hope is that we won't have any, it is that that will be straightforward if tedious.
2: We are not yet a true microkernel, but we will be a true microkernel when we feel like becoming a true microkernel.
3: And, and the reason why the fact that I wrote for hubris goes out of its way to not use the M word is I somehow in my career I've worked on a series of teams where microkernel has been kind of a contentious or bad term. And I came to Oxide from the Fuchsia project at Google, which, depending on who you ask, either is or is not a microkernel. Um, and I think that sentiment breaks down very cleanly around along organizational boundaries within the team. But, you know, it's easier to build software if we don't get hung
2: up on these kinds of
3: terminological distinctions. And
2: uh, I should just point out that the terminology microkernel falling along organizational lines is hilarious, uh, due to you know the structure of both microkernels. And yeah,
1: it, 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 there is something, uh, there's some, some something karmic about it, isn't there? That like the is like your organization is structured as a microkernel, so every organization can have its own feuds within it. I mean, there is something, yeah, it's interesting.
2: See, I don't want to pull the like who's the coolest kid kind of thing. But like, I was obsessed with Exocernels in college, which I know is a thing that you all don't really like. But that was, that was my, I, the equivalent of like, no one believes that my preferred style of operating system is real, but I'm going to make it real and show them. Uh, and yeah, they haven't, that's, that's a whole different can of beans. Um,
1: the ec- but- well, no, okay, so the exo is actually interesting. And I, first of all, actually, Cliff, I want to go back to the wisdom that you had, because I think it's important, where the, like labels in software can be helpful, but they can also serve to be really corrosive where, oh, I am actually just going to move this label onto this thing that is assist- that is something I don't like as an excuse to not like this new thing. Like, and I I, I mean, I, I'm paraphrasing, but I think that's part of the reason that you, you've deliberately wanted to avoid characterizing hubris as a this or a that or something else.
4: I I think this case matters so much. One of the things that I've reflected on uh, from Fuchsia, we, like, our our IPC mechanism could be a lot faster as well, but it's working just great where we're deploying it. Um, I think one of the fastest ways to kill a microkernel is to try and self-host a C compiler system for it on top of a microkernel, because C compiler file system IO operations are extremely short lived. So they're like a pathological case. Whereas that's not most of the workloads that we are building that we care about. And and I would also go to the point of saying that no truly useful system ends up being purely within any category. Right, I mean, Linux, yeah. Linux you could call a monolith and then you've got fuse floating over there and you've got a handful of other things. And you know, if, yeah, if, I mean, I, if you're I, not transcending categories, it's probably not working out too
3: well. That's right. And I'd, I'd actually like to amplify that point. The, we computer people, if I can speak in gross generalizations, uh, like to stuff things into categories. We like to have labels and we like our labels to be mutually exclusive from each other. And in general, this is a complete fabrication that, is for our own intellectual and communication convenience. These labels are not real. We are making them real by putting emphasis on them. And if it's not evident that I was a liberal arts major, uh, that'll become more obvious. But the fight over whether something is or is not a microkernel is like a complete waste of energy because there's likely nuanced reasons why, well, in some respects, this resembles a microkernel. And in these other respects, it doesn't resemble a traditional microkernel. And in these other areas, it seems to have lifted ideas from monolithic systems. And I've tried to be careful writing the hubris fact to be clear that th- these, these categories don't aren't necessarily meaningful, but it's useful to draw sort of more nuanced comparisons to other things.
1: Yeah, indeed. And I think that, that there are so many attributes of hubris that are just like that are orthogonal to those distinctions that are i think really important and that there are a bunch of different things that that hubris has done that at least i haven't experienced in another in another system um one of them that i think to me one of the uh early indicators that the talk path was going to be really really brutal was not just even we were talking about going you know Repelling down into LLVM and Ropey and Rippy and all these other things, it all kind of felt like somewhat attainable. What felt was going to be really, really difficult was dealing with the, the talk is built, Cliff, and you said this earlier, around dynamic programming loading where I want to load a program that I've never seen before because it's a student's program and that student is going to be iterating many times over reloading a new program and that makes sense for a teaching system. And it does not make sense for a system that we're trying to attest, where we actually want everything. At, and and I just remember thinking, like, boy, that is going to be just brutal. And I, Cliff, I remember at one point you being like, you know, like in our system, like we don't want any of that, and that's gonna we're gonna have to do some totally new mechanism to deal with this. And it's like, oh boy, this is going to be. And one of the things you did with Hubris that I that was certainly one of the early things that I that. I, Personally, I was like, "Wow, that is very clearly the right path for us." Is this knowing all tasks at compile time, not actually having dynamically loaded tasks, and not having a loader at all, um, and it just eliminates a big class of problems? I would. What was your kind of inspiration there? Because that, to me, was was new and exciting about Hubris. <sighs>
3: Well, I mean, the deeply embedded systems that I've worked on have always been structured that way. Um, But their operating systems usually didn't support it. They contained like, like FreeRTOS is probably the simplest easily available RTOS. I guess Zephyr is getting more popular, but FreeRTOS has been around longer. FreeRTOS has dynamic task creation and uh, and destruction routines. And this is how you make your tasks. And if i'm the one writing the application these routines are called in a loop at the very start and then never called again but they are still living there and the data structures have been designed in support of that use case and fundamentally as embedded programmers we get to cheat we are not building a laptop we are not chrome os Uh, we are not the google home hub we know everything that the system is going to do in advance so let's shrink wrap effectively the kernel to the application and shrink wrap it around the tasks that we need. And when we were using talk, I was just, was reading the talk kernel code and imagining like, oh no, what mechanism am I going to have to build into here to turn off the dynamic program loading? Because, uh, it is possible to do a remote code ex- execution exploit without dynamic program loading, but boy, it sure is easier if there's an API for
1: it. <laughs> right. Boy. Well, it, it James it goes to your point too about talking about how the kind of self-hosting, uh, viewing self-hosting as a constraint of an operating system kind of guides you to building an operating system designed to compile other things. It's not actually hubris will never be self-hosting, virtually tautologically. And that, that is a total non-goal.
3: I mean, I'm not tempted to say challenge accepted in response (laughs) to that. That's right. It's certainly not intended to be self-hosted.
1: It's not intended to be self-hosted. Yeah, exactly. Uh, But so that kind of, as you say, it's that cheat, Cliff, where we are really taking our, our design for application, namely a deeply embedded system, and then that realization then unlocks i think a bunch of things. So Adam you were asking about the origin of humility. I had been building some debugging support for talk. You and I both were were working on on talk later. later. rip talk later. That's right. It's where we were taking cuz when you run a when you synthesize risk 5 in uh, and Verilator will give you a complete instruction trace. And I'm like, this is gold. We should be using this. No one in the talk community or OpenTitan community is really using this. We use the instruction traces to actually show code flow, use it to actually debug a real problem, which was very gratifying. Um, so that was kind of my entree into debugging hubris. And I think to a certain degree, I, th- I that that kind of overcorrected me because Cliff, you remember we were really focused on like ETM early and the ETM is the embedded trace macrocell in, in cortex parts. So it turns out it's not in the M seven, it's only in the M four. And I'm not sure which, which variants include ETM, but I was, so I was kind of starting with the idea of like, wow, we really need instruction traces because that's what had been useful in talk, you know, you was kind of fighting the last war in that regard. But then seeing what Cliff had done, and then, Laura, you were starting to develop – I mean, you were effectively the first hubris developer, if I recall correctly, um, and, and you were starting to actually develop uh, hubris code for the, the LPC-55. Is, is that a correct re- recollection? Yeah,
6: so I, I think I ended up, um, the, the initial port for Hubris was done on the STM chip. And then I think about that point, we had like finally decided, I think, pretty concretely that we were going to be going with the LPC c 55 And so I ended up just sort of picking it up just because no one, no one had done it yet, just sort of as an ex- experiment to try and get it going. This was also actually the first port just to go from um, ARMv7 um, uh, um, and on the STM ship to the arm V8M on the LP-65. So this was also an experiment to see about how hard it would be to to deal with quirks like that. And it turned out to be pretty easy so far.
1: And you were then developing, I'm trying, whether it was the spy support that you were developing early. I'm to remember, you were developing something early. And I remember like asking myself the question, like what is gonna be helpful to Laura as she's developing this? I don't know if you remember this Laura, but me asking you like, would it be helpful to have like a task listing, for example?
6: Yeah, and... I, I think I did a lot of initial drivers kind of speculatively just to try and get it after the initial, you know, blink and LED type thing to try and figure out what exactly, just to try and I think even get to learn about what the L B 55 was, was in there and, and figure out how to make it work, so...
1: And so I, I remember asking you, like, would that be useful? You'd be like, yeah, that would be, yeah, that seems like that would be useful. So I'm like, all right, so I'm going to now use this great cheat that that Cliff has of us knowing the entire system, and what does it look like to actually get, because we now we know everything about the system, so with actually very little cooperation from the target system, we can understand what tasks are doing, for example, Um <laughs>
6: This is also about the history of debugging is is that, you know, we mentioned GDB before. I I think also previously our debugging uh, option was semi-hosting to be able to get print output. And that was really slow on some of the targets, which I think was uh, annoying you to no end. I was okay with it. And it was actually (laughs) long after humility was out,
1: but. um... Yeah, I mean, so semi-hosting, I mean, God bless semi-hosting, it's important um it it's, it's also
2: just literally too slow when you're trying stuff so like as somebody who's new to this i remember when i was trying to turn one of the the C driver to be interrupt driven and i'd use semi-hosting for my initial like printout stuff to, to exactly debug it and it was like cool it works let me remove all the semi-hosting stuff and i remove it and it wouldn't work anymore i'm like oh no and it's because the timing of the waiting for the semi-hosting made it work appropriately so it's, it's like a problem also even if it's not like a, just a preference i guess that's what i learned anyway
7: yeah, I, G- I, yeah. sorry, Semi, go ahead. I, I wanted to point out that I get the impression that stuff like semi-hosting is the kind of things that people who are coming down the stack towards embedded systems are like, yeah, that that's nice, we can have nice things, let's let's have something like that. Um, whereas, I, I don't know, it's like I've, I've read some embedded programming books and like the common wisdom is you have a UART and that is how you interact with your system.
4: Like, oh, ab- absolutely. Or you blink an LED. <laughs> you know, it's also that debuggers and embedded systems are built by people who don't believe debuggers work and therefore, tautologically, they don't work.
3: <laughs> I enthusiastically agree with that.
4: Um, and, like, you know, if, if anyone has ever tried to bring up, like, JTAG debug, you you know, you're probably on Windows, you've got Eclipse running... You're crossing your fingers that all this like tower of vendor babble is attached to a random ST Micro JTAG adapter, which may or may not be trustworthy. Um, it's it's really a complete nightmare, and will probably take you longer than you know hand inspecting every line of your code to get
1: working. Um, so you are reminding me of one of several holes that oxide nearly fell in or argue we did fall in um the, the so the debug the the on-chip debugger is a as a separate chip effectively it's got its own firmware that you use to debug the target system and these things are uh, even the ones that are putatively open leave quite a bit to be desired and uh Hey Cliff, maybe it's still our fate to to design our own because I feel like we came super close to. <laughs> I just remember a, a period where we got so frustrated with the stuff that's out there. Um, it, it being, Cliff, actually, would, we, would you mind actually uh, giving people a, just letting them know how semi hosting works? Because I think that, and what semi hosting is.
3: Yeah. So semi hosting is an amazing hack perpetrated by Kiel, which is a tools company that Arm now owns. And it is an answer to the question of, I've got this embedded system and I've got this debug link to it over JTAG or SWD, which is ARMS debug serial protocol. And I would like to blank. I'd like to run some unit tests maybe and get the output from them. Or, you know, maybe I just would like my printf's or, you know, print lines to come out somewhere. So what they've done is one of the things that a debugger when it's attached to a chip like this can do is halting debug it can notice if the chip reaches certain points or satisfies certain conditions and stop the program and in particular on arm like on most instruction sets there's a breakpoint instruction that you can insert so semi hosting is a is a protocol in the sense not in the network sense but in the sense of a set of agreements and rules that your embedded software and the debug tools follow to allow breakpoints to serve kind of like system calls so your program executes a breakpoint that is formatted in a special way that your debugger on your laptop recognizes and says oh this breakpoint it's not really a breakpoint this is a printf i'm going to look at the machine registers and figure out where the block being sent is and then print it to the screen and then resume the program so this is Cool, not only because it's kind of a ridiculous hack. Uh, it's it's also cool because you can use it on a system when you have nothing attached to it other than like three wires of debug connection, which is nice. Maybe all of your Uarts are tied up doing product things and can't be used for printf debugging. Um, but it, it's also nice because it's almost entirely independent of the chip. Your semi-hosting code will work on an ARM Cortex chip made by essentially anyone you don't need to know the clock frequency it's running at you don't even need to know if the clock is stable necessarily which you do for a for uart um so it it can be really enabling the downside is that as people have mentioned it's super slow because the whole processor has to come to a screeching halt wait for your laptop to go out over USB and notice that it halted and then go and slurp some data out of its memory, and then tell it to start again. And then your software runs a little bit longer and then does another print call. So it's not perfect, but it, it, it works surprisingly
2: well for how weird it sounds.
1: It be it, it the works opposite a... of a turbo button, right? It's like... It is Yes, it is the opposite of a turbo button it is also like honestly i think it's essential i mean it's a, it's a very good little facility do not leave it on in shipping code though the, the, because if you do an h in a in shipping code your it will stop like the, the, the target has no way of knowing that oh by the way like we're on a balloon or we are been deployed in a deeply embedded context like if we stop there's no JTAG header here, even like there's nobody can unstop us. Um, yeah, if
3: you're really lucky you can get the processor to deliver a debug monitor exception, but you have to do some setup to make that work. Out of the box, semi hosting will just halt your CPU if there's nothing attached, which is unfortunate.
1: It is unfortunate, and it is undebuggable. Um, so. The um, which is obviously I, I uh, challenges with semi-hosting. But I mean, I, honestly, I and also a strange name. Although Cliff, the way you gave such a good explanation of the history there that the name semi-hosting almost made sense in your... <laughs> it's definitely a, a bizarre name. Um,
3: well, it's derived from the concept of, of hosting your software on your workstation during development so that it can reach out through an emulator or whatever and do you know, read test vectors from the file system or what have you. So semi-hosting is halfway to that. It's running <laughs> parts of the code on your workstation and parts of the code on the embedded processor.
1: Right, yeah, there you go. So I guess it does make sense. Uh, and we, there's a there's a faster way to, instead of actually um, stopping the CPU, um, there's something called ITM. Um, with the instrumentation tra- trace macro cell, which, ela- which is much faster, but is also lossy, which is a huge problem. One thing about, that's great about semi-hosting is it's not lossy. Like, you stop. And you, so you, you're you pretty much guaranteed that if you have semi-hosting output, you're going to see it, whereas you are not guaranteed for ITM output. I am really concerned that I have just dropped. Have I dropped? Am I still here? I'm still you're here. still here. You're yes, still here. Okay. Yeah, yeah, no, it's just, and all the, the rest of us are gone. No, I, the, the, Twitter Spaces is doing that thing that it likes to do. What I think, What if I just freeze everybody for right now? Oh,
3: did um, you plug in a
1: headset by any chance? Yeah, that's right. That's right. i plug in a headset. Uh, but so we were looking at, and looking at, at at ITM which was uh, and we are we are using ITM. That's part of what, how we got to the the got to go down our own debugger path because the ITM support is really not great. Um but the to me like it was clearer that we could do we could be much more valuable by understanding the system at large and be able to show you much larger context. Um, and I, the, I, there are a couple of key moments in this. One cliff was like what you did with respect to the, the archive and just the amount of things that are that this, the system knows about itself that are in the archive that we don't have to load. Yeah, we haven't documented
3: that it might be worth unpacking that so to speak Uh, yeah please so the hubris build system produces a thingy at the end a thingy that contains the firmware that you can use to flash another thingy but the details of the thingy are kind of important so rather than simply producing like a binary image that gets blown into flash or an elf binary that is basically a binary image plus a bunch of metadata we realized early on that um, so our build process produces one ELF file per task and then another one for the kernel and that's important because we keep those around because they have the debug symbols in them and uh, you can't really merge the debug symbols between tasks because they're memory isolated so if they both declare a static variable called x they're separate variables called x they are not the same uh, which is you know important so we were dealing with these collections of elf files and uh, we did what I think a lot of people in software in the past 20 years have wound up doing is uh, say, gosh, wouldn't it be more convenient if this was all one file? So the output of the Hubris build system is actually a zip file now Mm -hmm. that contains a well-defined directory structure with all of our task elf files, the kernel elf file, but also the configuration files that were used to drive the build system. And um, soon the, Uh, interface definitions for all the IPC messages that can be sent in the system. So you wind up with this one file that you can hand to the flashing tool or to Humility that contains the entire state of the system that you might need to interpret, independent of any versioning concerns. And this is really nice because imagine if you had to rebuild your debugger for different versions of your firmware so that it could pull in different interface definitions. That would be super annoying. And having a build archive that we can slip sort of arbitrary metadata into keeps us from needing to do this. And then Brian did something kind of weird with the human core dump support where the core dump support blows out an elf file that looks like a core file on a Unix system. But in one of the sections of the elf file, he stuffs the build archive. So if your field tech sends you a core dump from the embedded processor, you can feed this to the debugger. The debugger can take it apart, pull out the build archive, and be confident that it's using the right symbol set for the right version of the firmware that the tech was interacting with. So you can't get that wrong, which is nice. It is nice. It's
1: a, okay. It's kind of weird, but it's nice. Isn't it nice? I,
3: it's kind of weird, but like, oh, semi hosting and semi hosting. Yeah, there you too. go. Okay, right. Okay. Yeah, I, I should. It, it,
1: know, it, ever- it, is, it,
0: it is not that weird in particular because how many times, how many times at Sun, you know, back in the ancient times, Brian, did we spend time trying to? sync up Ryan! a crash dump with a particular set of Ryan! source files.
2: I am so confused right now.
1: That's because-
2: I, I feel like that was a child trolling.
1: That was a child, unfortunately, uh, I, you know, I, Adam, you, you and I, we try to be HA in the respect that, that one of us is not dealing with a parenting situation at any given <laughs> moment. And uh, you had an unmuted parenting situation, but I had a muted parenting situation at exactly the same moment. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that. exactly. So, <laughs> Klabnik, drive.
2: It's, yeah, it's also, I mean, it's not weird to eventually end up with a file that's totally not a zip file that's actually a zip file. Like, this has happened in almost every project I've ever worked on. Like, literally cargo packages are like a dot .crate file that's like, oops, it's secretly a zip file. So, it's just like what always happens eventually. You want a bunch of things to be one thing, so you make a zip file out of it.
3: Well, and you can also see that with Java jar files or secretly zip files. And so is every GIF file that I received from a security job applicant. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I think like, once we started putting things in the build archive, I feel like a bunch of other things. That, that suddenly, there's a lot of things. There's a lot there's of so things. things. Yeah. So you want to elaborate on that, Steve? Because I think it's actually... We've now use yeah, it as a I, way of solving I, a bunch of
2: much things. This is the thing that I found super interesting. Again, coming from more higher level things, and then kind of doing this professionally for the first time is like there's a lot of people complain about Rust binary sizes, for example, and a lot of that is because they use LS instead of the tool that like actually says how much code there is because we include a lot of debug info, and so you know there's the, kind of this split between the stuff that's actually in your files versus what goes on the device, and so we're able to include all of this rich debugging information, like you already said, uh, individually in these, you know, files that are in the zip files. That way it doesn't go on your device, but you're able to look it up separately. I think that's definitely really cool. Uh, Small shout out to Windows, where this is the way it works all the time. You have a separate file with the debug info instead of putting it in the binary. So that's a whole separate thing. Um, But just in general, yeah, there's like all the tasks individually. There's like, A text file represents the memory map. There's like a couple other random things, but it's just been super useful to be like, yeah, are you ever gonna need this later? Shove it in the zip file. It's not going on the device anyway. It'll be really easy to check out later.
1: And so as long as you're on the point of Windows, actually, Steve, could you elaborate on that a little bit? Because actually one of the things that was super interesting to me about having used Rust for all of this stuff is that you at first but are by no means the only person at Oxide. I saw Nathaniel here earlier, Nathaniel and Nathaniel and a lot of the E's have to use Windows because there's, there's tooling that's only available there for them. We kind of got the Windows support for free for all of this tooling, which to me I, yeah. I still kind of marvel at.
2: I So when I joined, Hubris didn't build on Windows because Brian had used string concatenation in one place instead of the actual path. Jesus API. Christ, that is that so personalized. That was it. That was that all it. So no, 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 what I'm saying is, this is an important point. Like you were like, I would never, if I wrote some C code, I would not expect to run on a Windows in the first time. But it was literally like only one thing. Like I think it had like a, a six character diff or something. And then it all it was, just worked yeah. on Windows. Like I'm saying <laughs> it, it's minimal. I'm not trying to call you out. I'm saying like you almost 100% got it correct by accident. <laughs> um, and so like, you know, that's like part of the thing. I, I've been using Windows for the last five or six years because I used to joke that it's like the more hipster option. And at this point Microsoft has reformed their image to the point where maybe that's not actually literally true anymore. But uh, I sort of showed up being the only Windows user on the Hubris team at the time anyway. Uh, we had more people sort of like join and also using Hubris uh, and so we're And like 99% of it just absolutely worked. has continued to mostly just work. Uh, honestly, the most annoying thing about using Windows is Hubris, it's not Hubris itself, but the fact that GitHub Actions is so slow for freaking <laughs> Windows builds that that's would, like the only thing that's actually kind of an annoyance. Um,
3: I, I disagree yeah. with you on that. I think the core annoyance is that Windows and to a lesser degree Mac are the operating systems we interact with that don't have package
2: managers. So yeah, that's fair too. We've almost killed now. almost all that. <laughs> there's only one. If 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 uh, you know, we just need to get rid of this uh, dependency on uh, what is it, NM or something? Uh, I forget what it is, right? Or something? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. There's one tool, and then it'll just be all the rest tools and It'll be totally fine. Mm. Um, but yeah, like stuff stuff totally works on Windows, and it's it's also interesting and weird coming from that perspective because so much of embedded seems to be only on Windows. Like, there's a lot of people. When you hear embedded stuff on Hacker News, people are like, oh, well, you know, does this even work on Windows. And people are like, are you kidding? Like a lot of the embedded stuff is like Windows only, actually, because vendors give you this code that's like, well, we support it on Windows and that's it. Like, uh, so it just sort of depends. But we're lucky to have a really good cross-platform development story. And, uh, you know, for the most part, it just works uh, other than the couple dependencies we haven't finally killed yet.
1: It's pretty remarkable how well it works, and in the, the 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 path separator issue that you're highlighting. I mean, again, I feel very deeply personalized, of course. The, uh, but oh, it's good. It, um, I mean, honestly, Rust could not have done any more to try to get me to use the platform independent separator and i like insisted on doing the wrong thing basically i just didn't know about it actually i didn't i didn't realize that they had abstracted that and as you say actually it did not even occur to me that this is going to be the one thing i kind of had that feeling of like well There's going to be lots of other reasons we don't work on Windows. It won't be the path. If the path separator is our problem, like, give me a call. It's like, okay, here we are with a call.
2: (laughs) Even then, humility, which was entirely your own code base at that point, I think, worked perfectly. Like, it was literally just, like, one small bug in hubris. And other than that, total cross-platform, like, no big deal.
0: That happened to be introduced by
2: Brian. Yeah, we get it. I'm
4: also going to say that if you told me it went off without a hitch, I would not have believed you.
1: Right, (laughs) exactly. No, it's been, it's been great. And again, you know, we, Nathaniel was, you know, in the lab as we were doing a bunch of like, of of hubris and humility work together and along with doing a bunch of FPGA work. And it's just like, it didn't even occur to me that like, Cliff, you and I were building on Linux, and he was building on Windows, and everything was just kind of working, which was, which was remarkable
3: yeah i mean he'd, he'd build on windows and flash from there onto the product and then like take a core dump and send it to us and we're on our linux laptops taking it apart and then sending a patch back and like yeah i don't know it just wasn't wasn't no big thing
1: uh, i yeah it was it was not a big deal which is which was amazing um, Good.
3: The bug reports that we're getting most of our platform support issues now are actually on mac they're adam ran into this there there appears to be a class of rust installs on macs that i think might be a result of using of mixing the package managers that are distributed for macos uh where like it looks like rustup and cargo were speaking the same language but they're secretly not so you get version mismatch and i don't understand it but we we had another report come in
0: it's insidious and it and i never understood it i just started deleting files that were dated 2016 <laughs> until it worked
1: yeah <laughs> But it did work. You ultimately got it working, it sounds like.
0: But, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, got, I got it working, but it was it was like Cargo would say it would run one version, it would promise it would run one version, and it would run something completely different. It was bizarre.
1: That is really annoying. That's not nice at all. So a couple of things. Also, like Cargo X-Task, I feel, uh, has done a lot of lifting for us. It, 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 I mean, I don't know, Cliff or Steve, you want to talk about like how we've used X-Task and because i think that's been
2: yeah this is a bunch of stuff i did so i guess i'll talk about it and save a clip of time so basically uh, there's this pattern called xtask that uh matt clad who's the primary force behind the rust analyzer project had developed and basically it's just like an easy way for you to write essentially build scripts in rust proper and have cargo be able to use them so there's, there's a bunch of tools that kind of layer additional state on top of cargo like just and cargo make and all these things but you have to install them before you can get going which is kind of an extra step that's sort of annoying and so xtask is kind of this pattern that sort of abuses this cargo alias functionality to let you kind of like write custom scripts inside your project and then they can get executed so instead of writing cargo build you write cargo x task build and now you have a fully scriptable environment around your build or whatever and so a lot of the early work that i did on hubris is like moving stuff into this kind of direction Uh, And also just in general, I don't know, improving the build system stuff, but that's kind of basically the idea. And so it's not as fully featured as like a make clone would actually be. It pretty much just drops you into a function main and you have to write up your own thing. But it does mean that you can script additional things. And since we're building an entire OS with all the tasks being built separately and the kernel being built separately and then assembling them all together, cargo on its own just really doesn't cut it because that was not really designed. It's designed to build... You know, uh, one library and and binaries, not like an entire OS all at once. So there has to be some sort of layer on top of it.
1: And Steve, importantly, when you say scriptable, you mean scriptable in Rust. I mean, scriptable is writing Rust programs to build the system. And it, it has made it really easy to extend the system, I think. And, and it's been really nice to actually have your build system be built as part of your system is really nice. Actually,
3: I cut a section about this from my talk when I learned that I had 10 minutes fewer than they said I did. But the I've tried to do this in C projects and C projects, if I can make generalizations, have, I think, a very healthy fear of doing this to the point that like, if you look at OpenSSL, their build system and generation stuff is in Perl. And it's in Perl because People probably already have Perl. Perl doesn't have to be compiled, so you don't have to invoke the build system to figure out how to run the build system effectively. And Cargo managed to do this really well to the point that having Cargo responsible for building a bunch of tools that then are responsible for running the build system that calls into Cargo to build your other code kind of just works without really thinking about it. And if, I mean, I've had to write build systems in previous jobs and the fact that they got this right without conflicts or like surprise i built your architect your your uh, library for the long <laughs> target architecture um is, is pretty cool actually and it was really enabled
1: it was very I think, cool i personally had no idea how any of that worked i don't know like okay i just run like cargo x task dist like i kn- i knew what to type but i had zero idea what was going on and then i needed to go extend it in some way i'm like oh wait a minute like We actually generate, and then you go into it, you're like, wait a minute, this all just works? Like, this seems so complicated, and it all just seems to be working. It was amazing.
2: For the main Rust compiler, we do the same thing, except for it's Python instead of Perl, because it's 2021 instead of 1995, I say, with (laughs) my Perl tattoo, uh, rip Perl. But, like, yeah, like you need something to get it started, but then... It's like not a big deal. And so it's definitely a little unwieldy in the sense that you have to kind of to invent the universe, but also you get to do whatever you want, which is not true for most of Cargo. And so that's helpful. I still think there's a bunch of things that could be made a lot better with it, but it just kind of, uh, it is what it is. I don't know.
1: Yeah, that's been pretty great, honestly. And I feel like it's been another one of these things that I feel we've used more and more rather than less and less. I feel we have seen kind of more and more opportunity. I mean, Rick, the stuff that you did um, with the, the with the task slots, I feel like really began to leverage all of this and getting out of kind of that... You know, in part being cross-platform, also necessitates this. But getting out from underneath, calling kind of random utilities to do things as part of the build, and doing all of that effectively in Rust has been really powerful. I think.
5: Yeah. So, when I when I started sorry, implementing right. test slot, it was it was one of those interesting periods where I was like, wait, I can do things by packing it into special linker segments but that means that i have to go write the other side that actually parses these files and and does things with it and then i looked at the x task stuff again and went oh wait we already have whole frameworks that deal with parsing these things it's actually really trivial now so you know it's kind of that whole thing of because of us leveraging that pattern and and using existing rust libraries to deal with parsing elf and and dwarf information and things it suddenly becomes a lot easier to build more intricate um tools for for more special purposes
1: yeah and we have leaned on the dwarf information heavily which has been i mean honestly and steve remind me that the that there's basically a single individual that is responsible for the quality of dwarf information that that rust emits and boy am i grateful for it
2: I, I, it's definitely very close to it's like maybe one or one and a half people that, that do a lot of that work and so it's it's just classically true in open source there's always like one person somewhere who's doing all the stuff in that one niche that you actually need to rely on so it's definitely super helpful
1: and it could be uh i mean i actually honestly when i went into the dwarf support i kind of thought like well this is going to be there's going to be a lot of stuff that's just missing here because it just isn't generally important in most projects and I, you know, dwarf is weird and there's like definitely weird dwarfisms that you have, one has to deal with, but basically there's a lot of information there that we're able to use in lots and lots and lots of different ways that are, uh, and I feel like especially when you kind of accept that as a new constraint, that like I know the dwarf information is going to be there when I'm building my debugging infrastructure or what have you, then there are a bunch of things that become possible um, or easy even.
2: Yeah, the most stuff that we run into that's a problem, and not we in the hubris humility sense, but we in the, like the Rust sense, is that Dwarf is definitely designed for like the C ecosystem, and so representing Rust concepts in Dwarf sometimes can be confusing. <laughs> in my understanding, like it's not—it's not like it has native understanding of what a trait is, for example. So you kind of got to do some stuff, but uh, you know, it works, and it's better than it's better than nothing.
3: All I can say there is thank goodness for Ada, because the. <laughs> Not really. The, the the dwarf representation that Rust uses to describe data bearing enums, enums with fields, uh, is is support that was added to the dwarf standard for ADA, which got something vaguely similar in 1983. And so ah, it uses all I the terminology, that. like variant part keeps appearing in the dwarf standard without a Yes, that's,
1: that's an a, ADA standard term. Oh, that is yeah. so good to know. That's so good to know because I was actually – I was having those same positive feelings that someone came first, and I was having to as- subscribe those to C++, which was leaving me with very complicated feelings. I'm like, I think I'm grateful for C++ here, but it's such a relief to be able to move those over to ADA, which I feel not conflicted at all about. <laughs> but those are so, – so Cliff, those are – the data very – the, the data-bearing enums, which are so important in Rust, those—that's an Adaism. I did not realize that. Well, so
3: the way they're expressed in Dwarf is an Adaism. Uh, right. So <laughs> Ada has variant records, which are kind of like Rust enums, but are different in w- ways that we can go into if you're really bored. But they're <laughs> not exactly the same thing. But it did mean that the Rust team was able to reuse the existing definitions in Dwarf and not have to like add their own extensions to the war standard to representing those, which is fantastic
1: well god bless it because that then became super helpful for when as we're you know developing hubris tasks and one of the things that i personally wanted was the and that i've i feel like i've coded up a gazillion times in kernel development is a quick little ring buffer where you are storing you're storing data into a, a a memory buffer that is going to be circular that you're going to deliberately overwrite. And it's effectively an event log of the you know the last n things I'm interested in. And kind of the realization that like, wait a minute, I can actually use data bearing data bearing enums for this and use the Dwarf information to parse it. And now I can make it super quick to go sprinkle a couple of ring buff entries in some code of interest and be able to debug it. That to me was like a big light going on in terms of like, wow, this is, this is actually really powerful.
3: Yeah, the, the, the ability to derive a debug instance in system for a complicated Enum type or to do a similar pretty printing of a complicated Enum type through the dwarf information means that you have this opportunity to use types defined in Rust as a user interface mechanism. Uh, types that you may never actually parse in the application, you're writing them into a ring buffer purely so they can be printed by the debugger, And this is a thing that would be very difficult to pull off without dynamic dispatch or um, or dynamic allocation in a language that did not have Rust style some types or, or data bearing in
1: yeah, it is. Uh, it's tremendously valuable. And I think it also gets to another thing that I think has been a valuable decision, not necessarily by fiat. It's like it, it would in principle be possible to support tasks not in Rust. But as you, I think is in your phraseology early, Cliff, it's a non-goal. And one of the things that, that is a goal is Rust for tasks as well as for the kernel. And being able to kind of assume that we've got Rust everywhere uh, allows us to build abstractions that I think are are more powerful uh, and allows us to develop the system faster.
3: Well, and to go in a big circle, um, that actually brings me to one of the issues that we ran into with Talk that caused us not to pursue Talk further was that at the time, Talk didn't have user land support for Rust. They wrote their programs that ran in unprivileged mode in C, they use Rust for the kernel and wrote their drivers in Rust in, in safe Rust through some stuff that they do. And that wasn't really what we wanted to do because we knew the bulk of our code was going to be in tasks. And we wanted to write that code in a memory safe language because life is too short to debug pointer <laughs> all the time. And it's, it's like, I want to limit my comparisons to Fuchsia as well. But it's interesting to note that fuchsia has exactly the opposite combination fuchsia uses um, memory unsafe languages only in the privileged tcb and allows for uh memory unsafe lang- or allows for memory safe languages like rust in uh processes that run outside of the kernel and this was literally the first thing i asked my boss about after i joined the team and um they have their reasons but it's it's. We wanted to do something different, um, because the kernel seems like the last place that I want to have memory on safety problems.
4: Uh, have yeah, reason sounds like a very charitable take. Or, it is a very uh, cl- diplomatic,
3: diplomatic.
1: Well, do I mean, you know what? Do you know Cliff is a very charitable person? He's also a very diplomatic person. It may surprise you to learn.
3: <laughs> I mean, I, I actually think that. I mean, it's like I mentioned early on in this in this conversation that. I designed hubris in part because of the people we had around. You know, you, you design a system that your engineers can work on. And um, I think should to some degree, did the same thing. And that's not an unreasonable choice to have made. Uh, it's just not the choice we made here.
1: Yeah, interesting. So, Cliff, I, I want maybe to, to get to some of the, the things that we see, uh, the, the kind of the big next problems in, in hubris. Certainly, you're working on on one of them right now that I'm personally – very excited about that maybe you want to expand on a little bit
3: so due to a misunderstanding early on in the design of hubris (laughs) i I thought that someone at oxide possibly brian i honestly don't remember because like hubris (laughs) it started right at the beginning of the pandemic so like my memory is all scrambled but uh i thought somebody really hated idl's Interface Description Languages, the, these, these languages that people use to define, like, RPC message formats between plugins. So Hubris didn't have one. I wanted to see how far I could get just using the Rust type system to model messages. And the answer is, you can get pretty far, but modeling the messages isn't actually the part that hurts. It's generating, or it's, it's writing client and server stubs for handling messages and making sure that they all check the right error paths and look at the right codes and things like that so that you don't introduce bugs. So um, we just hired uh, Matt Keeter recently and he, he was approaching the project with fresh eyes and said, hey, do, if I want to start a server, do I need to copy all this, all this boilerplate? He said very diplomatically. And I said, oh, sorry. Yeah. Um, And we got to talking about it. So now we're doing an IDL um, so that we can generate client and server stubs to make writing tasks easier. And uh, that's coming along well.
1: Cliff, I would like to say that – I would like to praise you in contrast to Adam for you think it only may have been me disparaging IDLs, <laughs> whereas Adam would have said with absolute confidence, no, we were in an argument, and you shouted me down over using IDLs. When, I don't think I've been anti-IDL. If I have an anti-IDL – this has given me a complex that I am like uh, – that I have, like, somehow anti IDL.
0: Oh, you I don't remember it, you? No, I, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. No, I, I don't remember you being anti IDL. I'm not going to chalk you, uh, throw you into that
3: bus. So, one of the really awkward things about using humans as code generators instead of computers is that we all come into our jobs carrying all of our scars and trauma from all of our past jobs and the rest of our life, right? So, um, I'm honestly not even sure that this conflict happened. You <laughs> I may mean, come into this job like with scars from a previous IDL argument fifteen years ago that then manifested, right? It's, it's really hard.
1: This reminds me of my my mother had a coworker that was just being absolutely vicious to her for reasons she couldn't figure out. She's like, I think I must look like his ex-wife or something. I just like – and I feel like that's – I feel like we have that a lot where we have something that reminds us of a past trauma and then we don't actually – anyway. I, I, I hope it wasn't me. I, I'd like to say for the record I'm pro-IDL. I'm super excited about this IDL, uh, which is very on brand with Cliff, has got a terrific name. Cliff, you want to do the reveal?
3: Well, so we're, (laughs) I mean, I don't, I don't think it's that funny, but so (laughs) hubris has an unofficial mascot, um, becoming gradually more official. Um, so after I named the project, I was looking for an icon for the chat channel at work. So I went and found a picture of a broken statue, which was referencing the, um, Percy by Shelley poem, Ozymandias about, you know, the grandiose claims of a long dead King. Uh, So Ozzy is our, uh, is our bot that does reformattings and stuff.
1: uh, You have to say what it says when it does the reformatting.
3: Oh yeah. So it, it um, the commit message when it reformats your code is look upon my reformat and despair in all caps, Uh, which is great (laughs) because its
2: commits are like the most worthless thing. (laughs) It, it did until <laughs> earlier today when I killed it in humility and we'll kill it in hubris tomorrow morning. But yeah, so right. one more one more day of those commits happening.
1: Because we had a bug where it, apparently in the all public world, there are things that now broke where that, that used to work. And in particular, it was doing these commits to the wrong repo, which I even, I, I love that even more. That it's not actually just, doing the wrong
3: branch. It was doing them on the wrong branch. So someone's with <laughs> PR and ozzy would try to commit to their branch be denied and like throw a fit and go mess up some other branch just
1: <laughs> i look, say, look upon
4: my work mighty, and despair
1: in despair exactly. all caps like wrong branch i just feel like it got it it just felt very it all felt very poetic so Ozzie mandius i will i will miss your commits
3: well, so the, actually, the idl is in reference to Ozzie mandius is called idol idol um, and the repo is called idolatry because I have this habit of using slightly disparaging terms
1: for projects. And it's the, I mean, it's, it's the false idol of the IDL. It's good. I think it, it, it's going to be, and I'm really, that I think is going to leverage a bunch of the stuff that we've done. And the, I mean, and Cliff, I actually, maybe this is actually good. Cause the other thing I want to just touch on briefly, I'm not sure if this is another thing it was in the, like the missing minutes of your hubris talk, but the power of build RS is something that took me a while to appreciate. It is, in fact, in the missing minutes
3: of the talk. So one of gosh, where to start? One of the things that I really like about the Rust ecosystem is that it tends to be very pragmatic. And I realize that, that probably sounds ridiculous to C programmers looking at Rust and all of its uh, moving parts, but Rust has three ways of doing code generation. There's the macro rules, kind of matchy macros that are written right there in a source file that was the original thing that shipped with the language, and then there are sort of the so-called "right" way of doing code generation is the proc macros that can derive traits automatically for your structs, which, side note, is probably the number one thing I would miss if I had to go back to C++ right now. Um, but then there's this build.rs file and build.rs file has been around since the 1.0 release or before and it looks like a weird afterthought kind of thing it's like the, the the gist of it is you can provide this file that cargo will build and run before building your project which sounds silly or like is this a security problem or things like that but Fundamentally, this is the equivalent of putting some shell commands in your Makefile in a C program, except that you can have dependencies on external packages. You can have your build script pull in certi and read some files formatted in JSON and then, like, gzip compress them into a binary that it deposits into the build directory where your project can pull it in as an array. There's, It's just incredibly powerful and totally unstructured. So there's a few cases where we're using build.rs files to do various kinds of code generation or paper over things that we're doing that Cargo didn't see coming. For example, Cargo has this notion of features that you can turn on and off that provide sort of a limited form of conditional compilation. In embedded contexts, it's incredibly common to need effectively features with values. Um, Like, you know, you need to define something to tell which board you're targeting and it's not you don't want a boolean for every board you want a name and possibly three different names for like the processor type and the board model and the revision and so you can actually do that from a build.rs and and we do
1: and that was what when that was kind of my on trying to build on rs I'm like all right this is just some file I've got to go edit some boilerplate to be able to get board definitions I guess I didn't really appreciate what it did at all and then Cliff, you had to turn me onto it when I was doing some code generation for uh, the, the, some code generation for PMBus. You're like, you, you may want to look into this. And then, like, holy god, I can do what? I mean, forget proc macros. I can do whatever I want and create whatever source I want. I don't, I don't know. if you, have you played around with the rest. I mean, it's just like it. It is yeah, amazing.
0: I and you can do. I mean, you really can. You could like read in the whole source tree and make some decisions based on other source files.
1: It, and you can do something that I think, Cliff. I think you were making allusion to, although, although implicitly, you can like take an FPGA bitstream and compress it, and actually then deposit it in, in a binary that it can be then included in by your Rust program, which yeah, is how I mean, we—that's the thing we're literally doing, right? So that's what we we're literally doing. Yeah.
3: The the firmware for our um, server board picks up an FPGA bitstream, which will eventually be built from RTL, but right now it's checked in as a bitstream and. Uh, loads, builds a crate, implementing a simple compression algorithm for your host architecture, usually Intel, although less so with time, and uh, deposits the result of that into the source tree. The firmware files then include that using Rust include bytes directive, which
1: is really nice. Amazing. Amazing. Include bytes is so amazing. Include bytes include str are amazing.
3: And then the firmware... It depends on that same crate, but cargo knows to build the crate for your target embedded architecture when the firmware references it. So the build RS and the firmware are using the same crate to sort of pass data between them in a compressed form, uh, which is super handy and would have been a giant pain to do
1: <laughs> most
3: other build systems.
1: It is it is remarkable. And then it and then we'll leverage all and you're leveraging all that same stuff for idolatry, right? For the taking the these idle files and being able well, to generate. The, the way that you
3: generate code is you have your build script depend on the idle crate and it just calls in and says, I would like you to generate me a server stub and please put it here and then you include it from your source file.
1: And then the actual definition itself is in Ron, right? The, the Rust object notation, which is, yeah. uh, 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 is there are definitely some things about it that I definitely like, I think at some point, we're gonna to have to improve the error messages. Uh,
3: yeah, because... you're gonna to have to rewrite the parser at some point. <laughs> um, the, it, it probably won't stay in, wrong, to be honest. So we're at a stage in the project when we're iterating rapidly, we don't know what information needs to be present in the interface definitions yet, we're still learning, I'm porting all of our existing IPC interfaces over to this to sort of learn how I did it wrong. And During that stage, it's really nice to be able to iterate by only updating the data structures, the structs and enums and whatnot that you've got in the code generator and then use Serdi to load them from files. So right now our IDL files are just data structures expressed in currently RON that we load with Serdi to be structs in Rust and then manipulate. And this is fantastic for iterating, but it does mean that like every other case nowadays, where you've got a configuration file stuffed into somebody else's meta syntax, like JSON, or YAML, increasingly, uh, it means it's never quite right. You know, it doesn't doesn't feel quite right. And so I suspect eventually we're gonna want a parser, but for now, being able to just pull a crate off the shelf and parse complex data structures is hugely enabling And like Ron itself is popular in the Rust game engine community for doing uh, asset definitions and engine configuration, So it's getting a lot of attention from there, but it also has a bad habit of failing in ways that say line zero, column zero. And (laughs) I don't know why that is, but I haven't gotten in to fix it yet.
1: I, I feel that an error message should say like, "Hey, you might as well start commenting out half your Ron." And, and it's like because it's that's that is by
3: the development process. Yes. Yeah. Right. Like, right. Removing the comment characters around until it stops failing.
1: But Ron has comment characters. God bless it. So, I, yep. There, there's a lot to be said for it. So th- that's going to be exciting. That's going to, and then we can also once we have that, once we actually have, ta- we know oh, by the way, this task has this interface definition, we can leverage all of the things that we have built to then say, oh, so now if I can, if I see a message from, say, the debugger, from Humility, from this task to that task, I actually know how to interpret it, and I can actually show it to you, uh, and which is something that I have always wanted. I mean, haven't we all the ability to see these messages? Uh,
3: yeah, message trace with pretty Specifically, And having all of the IDL definitions in the Build Archive means that in theory, once we finish this mechanism, you can hand the Build Archive to humility and have it pretty print messages it's never heard of before that exist in your application, which is really odd. It's also weird, <laughs> like, per the wheel of incarnation, a reincarnation that constantly turns in our industry, um, when I joined Fuchsia, they were solving this same problem <laughs> for the- <laughs> and they they did it in a really nice way that's different from what we're doing but um i just think it's it's interesting that we're building the same thing this is is the hand icon on somebody mean someone
7: raising a yeah, hand? yeah it means simeon go for it he's got a question so uh this is a question which is kind of like uh i've i've heard a phrase mentioned in a few occasions by oxide folks you brian and uh one or two other occasion that that is hardware software co-design and if I hadn't heard that phrase 19 odd years ago, I would have thought, Oh, that means, you know, we have a small team. We don't have big silos. We have a hardware and software people work together, you know, smart move. Okay. Done. Move on. Um, and uh, you know, uh, hang in there. This, this has got something to do with code generation, but I happen to have heard of that phrase 19 years ago. Um, and, and, and the connection there was a series of papers that came out of a research group at Berkeley who did work on, basically the idea that you you model your entire system, perhaps uh, software, hardware, you know, um, uh, uh, you know your your RTL for for your FPGAs or whatever, and then you have like this big button that you press in this amazing software suite that generates all your code for you. Um, now I, you know, that's not something that I, I, think necessarily was going to work or would work, but um, you know, and and there's an interesting story arc that kind of <laughs> connects these things together, um, but uh, uh, and oh, sorry, and and they called that co-design, um, uh, but but I'm kind of curious, you know, when when oxide folks say that, do they, you know, what do they mean?
3: It probably differs. For each of us, you should separate us into separate rooms and ask us individually, just to make sure.
4: <laughs> so you're suggesting he take the microkernel approach, like <laughs> right, exactly.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well played. I also feel that, like Cliff, now I've got like each of us in our own interrogation room and be like, no, no, I'm not going to tell you what hardware. It's like Leventhal already. Leventhal already told us <laughs> everything. We actually already know <laughs> it all. We just want to confirm that you guys. Yeah. So.
4: I mean, but you Cliff, just yeah. Me. I mean.
1: Uh, Cliff, yeah. give your answer to this. I, I, I'm yeah. actually, I'm very curious on your answer to this. I've got some of my own, but I'd love to hear your perspective.
3: I mean, this is gonna sound like every Cliff answer ever, but you know, it really depends on, on what you mean. So it's a spectrum, yada, yada. No, the, um, what we are doing concretely, call it co-design or not. Uh, what we are doing is closer to the first thing that you said. We have the same people concerned with software and hardware. We are hiring hardware-fluent software people when possible and software-fluent hardware people when possible and making sure everybody talks to each other and there aren't organizational boundaries so that we can make compromises across the software and hardware stacks to make the product better rather than, say, having the hardware platform handed to you and you have to write the software for it. Uh, we can make a better product if we can uh, do that in both directions, uh, back-annotate in... in if I can abuse some schematic terms, uh, from the software back to the hardware, and that produces a better product. I'm also familiar with the sort of academic end of co-design that you're referencing. And the notion that you could have some sort of common modeling language or system and have a machine decide where to draw the lines is compelling. You know, it, it sounds great. I worry that... I mean, we've gotten very good at teaching machines to do massive scale applied statistics, which is what most of what people call machine learning actually is. And mm-hmm. the thing that they're that the machines tend to be kind of bad at is the intuitive leap. And I feel like yeah, okay. one of the things that we can contribute as engineers based on experience and, and resonance with each other and different backgrounds and stuff is even just the decision on where to draw that seam between the hardware and software, even if everything was generated other than that, I think is incredibly powerful and can make the difference between a product that works and a product that doesn't.
7: Yeah. So one of the purported benefits of the, of that, uh, the co let's call it the Berkeley definition of, of hardware software co-design is this idea that, you simulate your entire system and then you ha- you have new knowledge and you use that new knowledge to partition. So you decide, you know, this, uh, this part of the data path, we're going to do in software, this part we're going to do in hardware, because we've now learned, we've understood resource requirements, flexibility requirements, you know, how things fail and that kind of thing. Um, I, I kind of like the idea. Um, I, I don't want to take up too much of people's time, but but the sort of thing that connects the two is that it turns out that, 19 years ago, I was dating a girl who, whose dad, um, was building his own hardware and writing his own software for it, um, and he, uh, and so I, I did some work for him, and he was like, "Okay, so I have my own artos, and this is how it works," and I learned all of these techniques from these Berkeley papers. But then the really cool thing about that is that he made it pragmatic. He said okay, I know I'm not going to have this amazing tool where I model the entire system, I press the big button that generates everything. But his approach was to say, I'm going to mock out all my hardware interfaces within a single binary on my desktop system. Um, you know, in his case, it was uh, he needs to speak to a GPS. So he wrote a virtual GPS that may generate, you know, GPS strings on a, on a serial port, as, you know, for example. Um, and then Write his firmware to run as a desktop system that essentially simulated the target, and then he had the knowledge to say, "Okay, now I'm going to go and build the hardware." Um, and of course, it was all in you know in his head. He was you know one guy doing all of this, so he has a lot of advantages of being able to you know he doesn't have a communication gap and that kind of thing. But I thought that it was quite a cool technique. It's not something that I've seen elsewhere. Um, so, you know, every time I hear people say, how oh, are we it's like, wow, okay. You know, maybe, maybe somebody else is doing this too. I,
5: yeah, I, I will definitely say that the, the theory behind it of treating the problem as something from all the lower layers of the hardware up through the highest levels of software as one problem space. And then, trying to understand what challenges you run into and then figuring out where in the stack is the appropriate place to deal with those challenges applies. It's just that we're not taking the approach of, and and most folks who talk about hardware software co-design take an approach of it's more human solving the problem rather than... Be- making a big modeling system and having it try to solve it. Um, but it's definitely the, instead of feeling limited by the boundaries that already exist in the system, do, you know, I don't need to respect the uh, EFI bound- as a boundary. I can change both sides of that. So now I can make changes to better accomplish the, the goal that I have in mind um, rather than trying to develop workarounds for limitations in those interfaces.
7: I feel like that is to me, the way that I've understood the story of Oxide from the start. You know, it is, it is that vert, con- vertical control through the stack.
3: Well, and not having a PC handed to you that needs to be able to run Windows 3.1. You know, if, if we're <laughs> free from that, we have a lot more options on how we can build the system and which abstractions we can discard. Or yeah. the
2: service processor being totally not a BMC, uh, in the sense that we don't support any of that stuff that, like, is traditionally necessary, but it serves the same function, but right. like, in a totally different way, because, like, we don't have to care about people connecting their existing, I don't remember exactly what the acronyms are, uh, VNC or whatever it is, to be able to, like, log into your stuff. Right.
1: Yeah, and I... The, It's it's about having all these tools in the toolbox, and just as Rick says, and as Cliff is saying too, but like replace the, the the difference is we're taking a similar approach. It's just that we've got human judgment and and engineering that's actually making those decisions instead of a single unified software system. But to me, having the ability to come up to a problem and say like, well, what is the right solution to this? Is it is it an FPGA? Is it a microcontroller? Is, should this be something that's done in the host CPU? Should this, is, should we, I, I mean, just that ability, and to me, like, I, I think the way we do power sequencing really represents that, where we kind of have an option, do we, do we do this in the service processor? Do we do this in an FPGA? And in this instance of the product, we're doing it in an FPGA, an FPGA whose bitstream is loaded via the build RS mechanism that Cliff alluded to. In the future, we might change that, and we would change that if it made sense. But this this is absolutely makes sense as the way to do it now, and the ability to have all those tools in the toolbox, hardware and software, that to me is what defines our our co-design. The
2: the way I we did about it narrowly.
5: Okay, oh Rick. Oh, I was just gonna. The uh, we did narrowly avoid using Concept HDL, which. As we were trying to figure out why Concept HDL, the the Cadence product, is the way it is, we stumbled upon some of the original origins of that back to one of the system design projects. And it it was originally based around building supercomputers through hardware software co-design in the more modeling sense. Um, And, you know, we kind of looked at that and said, hey, that's really cool. Let's not do that because that's really complicated for reasons. So the,
2: the way that I think about this as a, a former web programmer is like, you know, historically you'd like see this system boundary and be like, oh, we can't do better than CGI. Like I can only write something against the CGI interface. But then, you know, eventually other people came along and invented FastCGI and WSGI and all this stuff. And like what we're able to do is both say like, are those specs better? But also just like, do we need them at all? Let's build the web server and the web location together because that interface is overhead and make the appropriate trade-off for whichever part of the system that we're building at. And sometimes that is conforming to existing interfaces. And sometimes that is eliminating the distinction and coding on both sides of it entirely and just, you know, not even care.
3: And like part of the reason that this is is important to me, other than that, I think it makes better products is that you could look at this from a interpersonal uh, and organizational dynamics perspective as a, a value for counteracting conway's law conway's law being the the notion that the the structure of of a product or a software application tends to reflect the structure of the organization that created it and i think that in general that's a bad thing and keeping things fluid and keeping the product from reflecting a siloed organization in a siloed product design with narrow interfaces if you can pull it off gives you the ability to not only iterate faster but produce a better product in the end
1: totally the yeah that's uh repelling repealing conway's law is or or uh, definitely something that we can you can do when you have all those tools in the toolbox so i uh i, I know we were kind hey, of coming up of on the th- two hour oh, mark yes yeah, go ahead go ahead
4: yeah, so just one of the other things that I, I have to say as someone who's been sort of watching the whole hubris uh, presentations occur here is that it's, it's incredibly interesting to me to see what happens when people who are typically used to sitting high in the stack and have all these nice things encounter embedded development and, and all the rough edges people have been put up, putting up with. Um, and, you know, things like just having gone through and put in humility diagnose, which at least in the web demos looks phenomenal. Like, it's like, oh, something's wrong. Well, okay, just tell me what it is. Um, is, is fairly alien to anything that I've ever seen in an embedded system, at least. Um, just like, this is uh, basically a strip mine of phenomenal ideas or at least different ideas.
1: Uh, Yeah, I mean, we are, and and I don't know, Cliff, if you want to give a little bit of backstory on on Humility Diagnosed, but that's definitely uh, Cliff's invention, as we were beginning to see some of the raw parts we had in front of us.
3: Yeah, I had a script on Loon called Autocliff, so that when I wasn't around, somebody could (laughs) run into a problem and then execute Autocliff, and then I could go on vacation, but
1: uh, uh, doesn't AutoCliff just say it depends or it's complicated? I mean,
3: the, 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 I mean more or less. But keep in mind, I, I was younger and you know may have seen a little more in black and white at that point. But um, the thing that's often like GD, GDB is a great example of this. GDB notionally supports ARMv7M and the Cortex-M processors, but frequently, if it takes a fault, it can't tell you what fault it took, and like that's kind of table stakes. That's the first thing I want to know, and it's in the architecture manual. It's not a secret. So I, we, we didn't want to wind up like that. And I wanted to reduce round trips between engineers that were using humility and familiar with hubris, but not deeply familiar with the processor architecture, like our excellent electrical engineering folks. Um, and, and me, you know, I, I'd like to be asleep sometimes. So providing things like that in response to user demand. This is also one of the really nice things about doing all of the testing, bring up and QA ourselves, is that we're getting customer reviews, we're getting feedback, we're we're hearing what tools we need in the field and we can roll them out. And uh, yeah, I, I honestly put a lot of the credit for this at Rust's feet, not because Rust as a language uniquely enables people to write diagnosis scripts or anything like that, but because there the list of things that I'm not thinking about is really, really long right now. And a lot of the things that I would have been thinking about and trying to handle through conventions and code reviews in a large C++ code base, I'm just not thinking about the type system has me. Um, so I can fritter my days away writing diagnosis scripts instead.
1: Well, and I think humility diagnose tacks into the fact that if a if a task is failing, it is very likely panicking. It is it is much less likely to be dying on memory corruption, or uh, uh, it is it is probably either overflowing its stack or it, it it is explicitly panicking. That can be that can be hard when the system is automatically restarting tasks to figure out why is this thing panicking and. Humility Diagnose allows it to say, okay, well, let's just do the thing that, you know, that, let's do the auto-clip thing, and let's actually see if this thing is restarting, and if it is, here's the panic message and so on, which is really, really helpful.
5: And, and definitely, I, I learned at Google that there are a lot more people who know a programming language than are very, very, very intimately uh, experienced with microcontrollers and architectural-level details, and there was always the the difficulty of how do I hire the next group of people to help build applications or things? And Oh my God. Yes. That definitely there, there's this whole aspect of, it's not necessarily about making the current developers lives easier. There's certainly an aspect of that, but it's more about codifying the steps so that the next group of people who are building on top of this don't have to gain all that that deep experience. Um, some I people will still have say that that, like you want
3: to say again
4: i think we lost them oh um but you know it is great in that like it's both very familiar in the sense of like production validation and test code you know like that ends up getting written for every board that ends up being produced in substantial volume but taking that same philosophy and applying it to the operating system and uh, to embedded code is something I definitely intend to steal.
3: <laughs> please,
4: please,
1: do it. Like, please do it. Please, please, can we give you a list of other things that we can steal so we're not the only ones doing it? So can, can you please steal memory uh, protection as well? Would I'm, you I'm, mind? I'm also, also I'm could you please steal the need stealing. for secure silicon?
4: Um <laughs> Definitely. Um, th- this is something we we badger vendors about at length. Um, anyway, um, <laughs> but yeah, you know, and and also like you know the, the debugging ring buffers, which are you know floating around in real kernels, but not so much in RTOSs all the time. Um, those are getting stolen for even more embedded things, for sure. <laughs>
3: Also, the ring buffers that are floating around in most kernels that I have experience with, you either get an unformatted string of bytes or you're doing string formatting at runtime.
4: What could possibly go wrong with throwing printfs everywhere in your debug code?
3: Yeah, the ability to just... To throw um, enums with meaningful field names into a ring buffer is... It blew my mind. This was Brian's work. This was not me.
1: Well, and the ability to do, for example, like, just... One of the challenges that we were having um, with Hubris is if you, for example, just have a, a an H printlin equivalent where you are formatting a floating point number, you have added an indeterminate amount of text uh, and stack consumption. Because as it turns out, formatting a floating point number is very fucking hard. And... You, 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 I mean, it's it's no slight against the code that does that, but boy, is it nice to be able to do all of that 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 floating the floating point processing in humility and not have to do it at all in hubris.
4: What what, Brian? You mean you don't always want to go percent zero six dot three f?
1: well you actually that i am totally cool with maybe it's because i have got i have like lowered my standards for myself i got no problem with that what i've got problems with is like oh by the way because you did that that h printlin, you now overflowed your stack or your that printlin has overflowed your stack and now what was a working mm-hmm. task is now a dead one
4: well clearly just don't write bugs but you know
1: <laughs> exactly all right well so i i we are at the two-hour mark, and uh, I feel – Cliff, I, I, th- thank you so much for, for joining us. This has been a really exciting conversation. Um, these are recorded, obviously, so people can go back and listen to it. But um, you know, I think on behalf of all of us, thank you for, for hubris. I mean we've all been really excited to participate in it, very excited to have it open and out there um and it's been really exciting for the rest of the world to see what we saw and i think that you know it'd be interesting you know your take on on this on how it's been received but to me it's been received really well and people have seen a lot of the same value that we have seen so thank you very much i'm just (laughs) delighted
3: that people seem excited about it and you know that could have gone way worse
1: it, that that could have gone way worse, and um, it was. It's been it's been really exciting to see. It's all again. It's all open source. All hubris and humility is open source. Um, if you haven't had a chance to check it out, um, one of my also one of my favorite videos is um, a uh, Rick, a friend of yours, that was uh, that had some free time on the, the day we announced. is like I I think I got an eval board lying around here and all install this I think on an F3 or F4 um, but um, it was really fun that, that's also a great video to check out we'll put a recording in the show notes but the because it's someone who is kind of like peeling the onion back as they are installing hubris and appreciating humility and so on and then Rick you that obviously did a great job talking about why we had made the decisions we, we had made um, so that's, that's also really good recommended viewing and then also man the docs are great a uh, huge tribute to a lot of folks, Cliff, you especially, but Steve, you as well, and others. Um, check out the documentation as well. Um, and with that, um, I think this. Uh, I guess Adam. I guess we'll leave the option open to do it next week, but we may cancel next week because we're coming up on a, on the holidays. Um, and if if we don't uh, if we don't see you until the new year, um, Adam, this is what our twenty. This is our twenty fifth or twenty sixth. Twenty sixth. Twenty sixth. And it's been a lot of fun. We love the. We we are loving getting to know folks this way. Um, Really enjoying it. So, thank you again. Thank you for a great twenty twenty one. And Cliff, thanks again for for joining us today.
2: Yeah,
0: thanks, Cliff. Happy holidays.
1: Great. Take care, everybody. See you all later. Bye.